So. I guess I should start by thanking everyone for being here, and also thanks to the Father for having me. Uh, I also want to thank everyone who contributed to this talk. So um, I, I love to think that I could do philosophy alone, but uh, this talk in particular is such that it required the help of uh, philosophers actually across the United States uh, who gave sort of critical comments on previous draft versions of the talk. And so if anything is of value I'm about to say, it's due not just to myself, but to them. Um, so, oh yes, there's a clicker. So, the talk I'm going to be giving today is about um, one of the possible ways that um, analytic philosophy and Thomism might be able to interact. And I don't mean to exhaust that way in the talk, to, those ways in the talk today. I'm just going to be talking about one of them. But the way that I have in mind for how they might interact is my thought is that Thomas might borrow one of the constitutive standards for what it is to be a good argument from their analytic brethren. And so just because I've been encouraged to give the talk in a paradigmatically analytic fashion, we begin the talk by offering an overview of what I'll be saying. Um, the talk has three parts. In the first part, I'll just try to sort of say what analytic philosophy is or what it at least might be. And I'm not going to sort of do anything particularly logic choppy in offering that characterization of what analytic philosophy is. But I'm going to sort of try to deny a couple of obvious characterizations that you might have in mind for what analytic philosophy is. And I'll just say how I'll be characterizing it going forward. In the next part of the talk, what I'll be doing is saying one way in which analytic philosophy would be helpful to Thomas. And I'll sort of spell out what that way is by drawing a distinction between two different standards for what it is to be a good argument. One of those standards comes from the Thomistic tradition. The other standard comes from what I call analytic philosophy. And then the third and final part of the talk, I'll walk through some ways in which analytic philosophy is sort of concretely helpful to Thomists. So that's the plan for the talk today. But first, because again, it's an analytic philosophy talk, we have to start with some pictures. Um, I've been warned not to move, so I have to hold my, my, my feet in abeyance. It goes against all my natural predispositions. Um, so here's a bad picture, just to clarify this is the next slide. Um, so the bad picture is one of an, of an analytic philosopher as a despot. So I, I, you know, unfortunately, to my chagrin, I gave, I gave the version of the talk, I gave earlier versions of the talk, not just to uh, Scotists and Thomists, who are dear friends of mine, but also to analytic logicians and mathematicians. And one of them has said, here I'm paraphrasing, and I will not name who this is. They said, who cares what the Thomists think? Just give your darn talk. Who cares what they understand? Just like, just like give the math. That's, that's anathema to me. That's like worse than useless. That's the kind of person who should never be flown to Rome to give a talk <laughs> at, at the TI. That's, that's not even funny. Um, so I, I, this is not a despotic talk. I have no predispositions to despotism. Um, uh, this is instead, so there's a picture that I like, because I was raised actually, as some of the people in the audience know, in this like dirty hippie community in the Pacific Northwest um, of, of the United States. And out there, we, literally, we, take the, we take the idea of being a good neighbor very seriously. 
So we take the idea of making good granola even more seriously, but, during, but being a good neighbor is the second most important thing you can do. It's good granola, good neighbor, all else is tertiary. Um, so the thought here, and it's just sort of a story, is like, look, you know, suppose you're someone's neighbor, and you guys are good to each other, you care about each other over the years, you help each other out when you see something, and you notice that your neighbor has a hole in their roof, and they're trying to fix the hole in their roof, and you know you, you happen to have, sort of by, by total happenstance, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't buy it, but you happen to have something around your house which is like good for fixing holes in roofs. So you walk over to your neighbor, you're like, hey, I noticed you got a hole in your roof and I got this weird tool. You want to use it? Um, and they're like, yeah, thank you. And they sort of take it and they keep their house, they keep everything else, their house doesn't change, but like they fix the hole in their roof. So this talk is meant to be just like a, that kind of good neighborly practice. Like analytic philosophers, not me, but some people much wiser than me, have come up with a, a very good way of fixing a certain kind of hole in a roof. We'll get to what that hole is and what the roof is in a little bit. Um, and so I just want to offer that to Thomas and say, hey, you can have this, but keep everything else. Keep your philosophy, keep your faith, keep all else there, but just like use this, use this, use this tool. So this is just meant to be a good neighborly talk. In order to set up the kind of paradigm in which we're good neighbors and sharing tools and whatever else, we need to say first, you know, what kind of neighbor an analytic philosopher even is. And here there's some contention. Um, some people think that, because it's not clear what analytic philosophy is supposed to be. Uh, some people think of analytic philosophy in terms of it's being practiced by a certain group of people. But nowadays, it's just kind of hard to see how that's true. Analytic philosophy is practiced by people of all different races, all different, on all different continents, all different creeds, whatever particular kind of person you have in mind as an analytic philosopher, there's some large group of counterexamples to the claim that only people of that kind do analytic philosophy. Analytic philosophy also isn't unified by what it studies. There are analytic philosophers who work on cognitive psychology, who work on physics, who work on logic purely, who work on well, traditional questions in philosophy, who work on history of philosophy. And so it's just not clear that we could say that analytic philosophy is to be understood in terms of its subject matter. There's then a possibility, which is what if analytic philosophy isn't unified at all? You know, so some people have the view according to analytic philosophy is just the sociological distinction, right? There's this thing that came out of, oh, let's say the 1920s. Uh, and if you're on one side of the thing, and you're an analytic philosopher, you're on the other side of the thing, then you're not. But there's no like, deep philosophical distinction characterizing the analytic philosophy versus the others. I'm mentioning all these just because I'm going to say I reject them. I'm not going to say necessarily why or give any kind of lengthy argument. The reason why I reject them is it seems like there's a nice way to sort of carve the joints, contra the suggestion on the last slide, to carve the joints between analytic philosophers and the not. The way I have in mind is to carve the joint in terms of methodology. I want to be very clear, this is a disjunctive methodological characterization. Um, but the thought is that an analytic philosopher is someone who does formally rigorous philosophy, where a kind of philosophy is formally rigorous just in case one of two things is true. Either they offer arguments which actually live up to the standards of logicians, in the same way you find like in professional logic papers. Or they offer arguments, like you do for instance in like 
actual the, the notes written by logicians for their classes, they, they offer arguments which can be reconstructed in ways which live up to those logician standards. So this is what I'm going to mean by analytic philosophy. Analytic philosophy are people who offer these kinds of formally rigorous arguments. And again, I can't stress enough, this is a disjunctive definition. Of course, analytic philosophers don't always offer arguments actually do live up to logician standards. My claim is rather that they could be reconstructed into arguments which do. It is worth flagging something very important right now. I'd like to thank the Father Philip Neary for conversations of the last three years about this. Um, that's about how, how far back it goes, I think. Um, I, when I say logic, I mean nothing related to what many people in this room mean when they say logic. So uh, as everyone in the room knows, when Thomas say logic, they mean something very, very roughly like the study of the act of thought. When I say logic, I mean something like the study of entailment. And I'll get to what I mean by the study of entailments or the study of what entails what, a little bit more depth later in the talk. But that's just what I mean by logic, something very different than what many people in the room that be used to calling logic. And that is just, you know, it's just a different use of a term. It should be no more troublesome than the fact that the term bank means different things in English. It can refer to both the financial institution, but also the part of a river. And it should be no more troublesome than the fact that the term monos means one thing in Spanish and another thing in ancient Greek. Um, so this is just an ambiguity of the term logic. But that's what I mean. So when I say analytic philosophy, formally rigorous philosophy, I define formal rigor in terms of my kind of logic. Couple notes about this characterization. Formally rigorous philosophy isn't necessarily formal philosophy. I sometimes do formal philosophy. My supervisor's in the room, so I don't want to talk at a school, but I, I sometimes do real formal philosophy. But sometimes, you know, formal philosophy is just stuff that lives up to formal standards. It's not like written in math, it's written in English. Another thing is that formally rigorous philosophers can study just about any philosophically interesting question. So just saying you do formally rigorous philosophy doesn't mean you study one part of the world or another. Study whatever you want to. Formally rigorous philosophers work on questions about God, questions about physics, questions about how we ought to treat each other, etc. And then the last point on the slide is the most important. No formally rigorous philosopher worth their salt thinks that formally rigorous philosophy is the only interesting or good kind of philosophy. That's hogwash. Balderdash, um, other English synonyms for hogwash and balderdash. Uh, so this is just the way analytic philosophers do it. It's not meant to prize analytic philosophy or other stuff. It's just what we happen to do. More to say about that later, perhaps in Q&A. Okay. So now perhaps we have some idea of what I mean when I say analytic philosophy. Again, I just mean formally rigorous philosophy. They just jump to a sense to find about the question now is what kind of divide is there, or is there any kind of divide, between analytics and Thomists? And it seems to me that there's one kind of really important divide. And sort of this divide will get persistified later on in the talk, but for now, I'll just sort of stay, I'll state it crudely. Um, the divide comes when we think about what it is for an argument to obey logic. And of course, the term obey logic isn't really a term that you know, people use in Thomistic philosophy. It's certainly not a term we use in analytic philosophy, but I, I picked a deliberately neutral term because we'll see later there are different ways to cash it out. Um, 
Now, philosophers, of course, care about a lot of things when it comes to thinking about arguments, which don't amount to just their caring about whether the arguments obey logic. But my thought is that every philosopher does care whether, at least when I think about a certain kind of goodness of their arguments, about whether their arguments obey logic. Why do you care about that? Because there's a certain sense of good, such that if an argument is good, then in your sense of obeys logic, it obeys logic. And that means that when it doesn't obey logic, it, it ain't good in that sense. And that matters to everyone who thinks about philosophical questions. That's the kind of thing which, you know, non-philosophers don't care about that, not at all. Philosophers, that's just good arguments. I mean, that's, that's a sine qua non of what we do. We'll get back to later in the talk why you care about that if you had more purely theological tendencies, but I think it even generalizes beyond philosophers. Now, just to stipulate before we move on, this is only about goodness in a certain sense. There are many ways in which arguments can be good which aren't good in this sense. We'll talk about that more later in the talk. Okay. So the divide between analytics and Thomists is a divide about what it is for an argument to obey logic. And I'm gonna spend now a couple of slides just talking about how we analytics like to think about it. Um, I'm not gonna get into the details too much, but I'll do as much as I have to. Um, this just in case should be a, an only clever. Get that later. So, um, what analytic philosophers say is that an argument obeys logic just in case it's valid. And we say that an argument is valid just in case, and this is where I threaten to ascend into gibberishness. We say an argument is valid just in case there's no interpretation function according to which its premises are true and its conclusion is false. So obviously the question is what the heck does that mean? Um, what logicians and mathematicians and analytic philosophers all agree upon, this is the kind of thing which still freaks me out a little bit, is that there's like an infinite plurality of these things called interpretation functions. And there's different ways this cashes out formally, but we won't worry about that for our purposes. Um, and every one of these interpretation functions tells us in a certain way for any sentence, whether that sentence is true or false. As I've alluded to in this slide, that means that many interpretation functions lie. So some interpretation functions, for instance, are such that According to them, the sentence that we're all in this room is false. Those interpretation functions are just mistaken. But then we just believe in this huge plurality of interpretation functions. Now, it's worth pointing out, for many Thomists, this will sound a little bit like anathema, because that requires believing in the kinds of mathematical objects which you may not believe in. But it turns out that all this is paraphrasable into sort of non-purely mathematical terms. So if you're willing to accept just a huge superabundance of sentences, you can say everything I said here without appealing to actually any kind of sort of set theoretic jargon. We can talk about that during Q&A. But I just want to reassure people, this sounds like super um, uh, metaphysically naive endorsements of a mathematical ontology, rest assured, it just really requires sentences, or so, so I'm inclined to think. Now, of course, you might ask, why do we believe in all these kinds of interpretation functions? I'll skip this for time. 
Um, but the reason why I believe in the interpretation function is it lets us do, it lets us do stuff. Um, the first point is that interpretation functions are constructed according to certain simple rules. For instance, the rule on the board, the one that, that comes after the colon, which follows simple example, tells us about disjunctive sentences. So what that says is that a disjunctive sentence is true. That's a P or Q on the left-hand side. It says that's true just in case the first disjunct is true or the second disjunct is true. And that's just a rule according to which interpretation functions are constructed. So for any interpretation function and any pair of sentences, the interpretation function will just tell us, oh, um, if P or Q is true according to this interpretation function, then P is also true according to this interpretation function, or Q is true according to this interpretation function. So the concrete example below this is just um, an interpretation function might tell us that the snow is white is true, and that same interpretation function would then inform us that the snow is white or the moon is made of cheese is true. This is all just mathematical gesturing here. But um, the reason why we care about all this is it lets us define validity. So you can think of interpretation functions as telling us about different ways the world, very loosely, as telling us about different ways the world might be. And then we say that our argument is valid just in case, you know, whatever way the world might be, in other words, for any interpretation function, if the premises are true, um, the conclusion is also. So one way of glossing this definition of validity is it's telling us, look, an argument's valid just in case it's impossible that its premises are true and its conclusion is false. And I was given some examples of the kinds of arguments. The one on the left is valid, according to this conception. The one in the middle and the one on the right are invalid. Okay, enough about analytic philosophy. Um, so there's, just to be clear, there's a number of different ways in which arguments can be good, which are not such that they require that the argument also be valid in a sense. So, um, for instance, an argument can be persuasive while not being valid, and it can be valid without being persuasive. So, you know, I'm anticipating there might be objections during Q&A before I'm ruled out and arguments being good. Don't do that. This argument is good, but not valid. That's fine. We're just talking past each other, I think, with conceptions of goodness. It's also worth mentioning right now, just like when I said earlier that logic was ambiguous between what I meant and what a, what a good Thomas would mean, argument is also ambiguous. So, um, you know, when, when, when Thomas think about arguments, think of certain kind of actions. But when I'm talking about arguments, I mean just certain kinds of collections of sentences. Again, this is just sort of terminological shapes in the night, which will make clear I'm coming from. All right. So recall, we are trying to offer a sense in which analytics say that an argument obeys logic. We've just seen a little gloss of the sense. An argument obeys logic in the analytic sense just in case it's valid in this like kind of mathy sense. Thomas, of course, are familiar with a very different sense in which arguments obey logic. There are a lot of complicated things that Thomas might say and have said about what it is for an argument to obey logic. 
But for our purposes, we can start just by introducing what we would call simple Thelmism. We'll get back to more complicated versions later. So according to simple Thomism, an argument obeys logic just in case it's an instance of some syllogism. Whether that syllogism is basic or derived using some conversion principle. Um, so just to give an example, I've, I've transliterated it to my own kind of English because that's why my brain works. But here's an instance of, here's, here's Barbara on the left-hand side. Here's an instance of Barbara on the right-hand side. I'm, I'm very tall, so uh, plain seats are as close as I get in this, this life to the devil. Um, so all plain seats are cramped, all cramped seats are evil. So all plain seats are evil. That's a darn good inference. Um, so we have two standards now for what it is for an argument to obey logic. We have the standard according to which our argument is logic is valid in this sort of quasi-mathematical sense. We have the, and we have the sense according to which an argument obeys logic just in case it is of syllogism. What I now want to suggest is that people who hold to the second of those views face a kind of dilemma. Spelling out the dilemma will require that you spot me a definition, sort of a standard definition for math and logic people, but um, it's... Uh, it's just a definition, so it shouldn't be too much. Um, so this is just, um, we say that a logic is complete, just in case for every argument. If that argument obeys logic, then we can prove the argument's conclusion from the argument's premises using our logical rules. Um, there's a little parenthetical in the middle showing how logicians like to symbolize that. Doesn't really matter for our purposes. Um, you might ask what the logical rules are. That's a superb question that I'll defer on the Q&A. For now, I'll just say everything I'm doing should look familiar, I hope. Um, the dilemma I have in mind for Thomists starts with the logical truth. The logical truth is that either Thomistic logic is intended to be complete or it's not. And then the reason why that's a dilemma is that it looks like neither horn of that uh, disjunction looks appealing. Suppose first that Thomistic logic is not intended to be, be complete. In other words, recalling, it's not the case that it's intended to be such that for every argument, if the argument obeys logic, that we can prove its conclusion from its premises using logical rules. Now it looks like there are at least two really big problems that the Thomistic logician faces. The first is that there's a giant theoretical hole in our logic. Um, there's lots of kinds of things that logicians do using the fact that logic is complete, which you can't do. But for our purposes, the more important problem is there's a big practical problem. Suppose you say that an argument isn't good because it doesn't obey logic in the sense of your Thomistic logic. It seems open, if your logic is not intended to be complete, for a person to respond to you as follows. Oh, you just haven't filled out your logic yet. Um, yeah, 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 my argument is obey the logic you spelled out so far, but, you know, that's just to say, uh, my argument is just such that it obeys logic without our being able to prove its conclusion from the premise using the logical rules you developed so far. 
That's just an instance of this definition here of completeness, or the, of the negation of the definition of completeness. So it looks like, in other words, if your, your logic is not intended to be complete, then whenever you make a claim about whether an argument's good based upon your logic, it's always open to a person just to say, we haven't spelled out your logic yet. Therefore, I deny your claim without having to worry about it. That seems like a major problem. But suppose, on the other hand, the Thomistic logic is intended to be complete. Then there's a really big problem. It looks like there are lots of inferences which Thomists say don't obey logic, but which clearly do. So we've just given a couple of sort of simple examples. Um, there's a lot more examples to give. We can talk about them during Q&A. One kind of example is a single premise inference. So De Morgan's Law is sort of a famous example. So there's two of them, but they say things like P or Q, therefore not, open parenthesis, not P and not Q, close parenthesis. That's a valid, that's a, that's a, that's an, a logical obedient inference if ever there was one, in my sense of, of logical obedience. But um, that's not an instance of a syllogism, because syllogisms have more than one premise. Um, and that, that inference only had one premise. Another instance is a, is a complex quantificational instance. So, you know, spelling it out mathematically is a waste of time, but, but you can spell it out just in English. You know, suppose, for instance, I say, for everything, if it's a human and French and um, Hunt's truffles and um, eats pork, then it eats pork. Uh, so, there is nothing which is both uh, human and French and Hans Truffles, um, but doesn't eat pork. That's a good inference, but again, not an instance of a syllogism uh, for two reasons. One is a single premise thing, but even setting that aside, there's a level of what logicians refer to as quantificational complexity in that sentence, which is going to be modelable, at least not in a straightforward way, by the syllogisms. There are various objections you might have in mind. Let me mention, I'm going to check the time. Oh, Lord. Uh, um, let me just mention a couple. One objection you might have in mind is that there are, there are other criteria which might let a Thomas say that those kinds of inferences obey logic than just saying that there are instances of a syllogism. So just to give one example, you might think that those kinds of arguments, or at least the single premise arguments, are tacitly enthymemes. So they're just arguments where one premise has been left analytically. And then you might think, well, we can grasp that these kinds of enthymemes are valid, or rather that they obey logic, um, by a kind of um, conceptual understanding of the relevant kind of inference. There's various kinds of things to say about the conceptual understanding, but let's use sort of conceptual understanding as sort of a generic term. That's a fine view, and people have it. The concern I have about that view is that it's, it, but it might actually just be practical problems that it faces. So, um, uh, sorry, back. Um, suppose that you're a Thomas, and you want to convince someone you've offered a logical obedient argument, but suppose that person doesn't believe in your view about conceptual entailments, 
it looks like if you sort of endorse the um, analytic approach that I've been sketching so far, you can show them that the relevant inference is a logical obedient inference. And I'll talk more about how to do that in a little bit. You can literally walk people through it um, just with math. Um, but it, it's very hard to show someone without sort of extensive training that the relevant view of a conceptual entailment is right. So it looks like there's a practical advantage in this kind of case to the, to the analytic approach to saying what a logical obedient argument is. Whoops. Um, another approach is you might um, believe that we can get out of this dilemma by appealing to some sort of logically sophisticated contemporary reconstruction of uh, scholastic logic more generally. So I'm familiar with Terence Parsons' work, and the father Philip Neary has made me familiar with Katarina Dutil-Novais' work um, on, respectively, uh, scholastic logic in general and Occam's logic in particular. Um, I'll just give the Parsons example here. So Parsons offers his own view about how best to reconstruct scholastic logic in a 2014 book. And the key definition that I cited here will probably not look familiar to the post logicians in the room, but it's a familiar definition to certain kinds of analytic philosophers and logicians in the room. Um, the concern I have about embracing this kind of uh, contemporary reconstruction, however, is that it looks like you've actually accepted the point that uh, we should understand what it is to obey logic in uh, analytic terms, if you accept this kind of contemporary reconstruction. So this clearly has nothing to do with syllogisms or enthymemes or anything else. This is just sort of a contemporary mathematical-ish definition of validity. Um, so it looks like this doesn't get out of the dilemma so much as it embraces it. Last thought is you might think there's a sense in which certain arguments that obey logic by the analytics lights are bad, and a sense in which uh, certain arguments that don't obey logic by the analytics lights are good. So for instance, question-begging arguments are sort of a paradigm of bad arguments, but those arguments can be valid. And uh, analytic arguments, like um, there is a uh, vixen, therefore there's a box, are good arguments in some sense, but they're not valid arguments in the mathematical sense or logical sense. And so you might think, oh, well, something's gone wrong with the analytic definition of obeying logic as well. But that seems to me just to ignore the thought that, you know, good can be polysemous. So if we can say that thing, arguments can be good in different senses, then we say there's a perfectly good sense in which those kinds of arguments are good, this is not the same sense that we were identifying earlier. We were talking about the sense of good, which says that when an argument's good, it obeys logic. So this isn't like an objection to the, the analytic so much as it is just a claim that the analytic hasn't offered a, a complete account of what it is for an argument to be good. But of course, the analytic never claimed to be doing that. So now, almost done with the talk, um, we finally come to the suggestion. Which is, look, it looks as though the analytic has a really nice tool for saying what it is for an argument to obey logic. And the thought is that the Thomists can take that tool without changing anything about their philosophy or changing anything about their faith. You can just use the tool that we're just handing to you as a neighbor. 
And the thought then is, you know, take the tool. So this, 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 this talk is just an extended argument that like, please accept the gift. We just want to like give you a thing. Um, and then we want to watch it through it. Really watching my father tell me to philosophy is like the greatest joy of my life. So uh, I just want to see more of that. Um, of course, you might have some objections to my, this kind of suggestion. So let me sort of briefly consider two of them. The first objection is that I've just mischaracterized the talk. So I said analytic philosophy has better standards. But all I've really said, it looks like, is that like logicians have better standards. That was just like a, what, what, what in America we call a bait and switch. I have two responses. One is hostile and silly, but I'll say it out loud. It's important. When the bad thought part, it's important to get it out so you get the good thoughts out. Uh, more clearly. Logicians are the people, yes, who say whether an argument is valid or not. But it's a controversial philosophical claim to say that if an argument is good in our sense, then it's valid. So this is what analytic philosophy to the table. Not the claim about what validity amounts to, but the claim is that in a certain sense, if an argument is good, then it's valid. The better response, I think, however, is that it's not just that analytic philosophers are the ones making the controversial claim that the argument is good in our sense and it's valid. It's also that analytic philosophy is the only discipline where people sort of try to systematically think about the connections between the kinds of things we call arguments in natural language and these kinds of mathematical properties of validity. And it's also the only field, perhaps, or perhaps the field where this is most done, where people try to generate theoretical tools that allow us to think about when arguments are valid in this sense or not. So we can talk about this more during the Q&A if people are interested. I know he's like flagging that. So he's like putting all the questions in, preloaded. Um, but there are like whole subfields all across philosophy where people just think about ways to figure out when we have arguments that are good in this sense. Um, so analytic philosophy has a lot to offer if you're interested in sort of using this alternative criteria for when arguments obey logic. The second objection, meanwhile, is that Thomists don't need to care, or at least not qua Thomists. I feel this is the part where the audience is like, yeah, I was thinking this all the time. Uh, uh, they don't need to care qua Thomists about the alleged inadequacies of their standards for identifying when an argument obeys logic. This is an important objection, and the way I'm going to show you it's important is by answering it in different ways. So people in the audience will have different predispositions, and the right answer sort of depends on your predispositions. On the one hand, for more theoretically-minded Thomists, and by theoretically-minded, it's really a bad phrase, actually. For more, for the Thomists who care about like the standard, by which an argument is good or not, right? For Thomists who care about like developing arguments and thinking about arguments and evaluating whether they're good, these sorts of standards seem obviously important. I mean, look, there are just lots of things, like with the Morgan style images we talked about earlier. They seem like clearly good arguments. We want to sort of offer them in sort of a maximally appealing way. This kind of standard for what a good argument is, or what, at least what a logical obedient argument is, gives us a better way, so we should take it up. On the other hand, for more practically minded Thomists, 
What matters about these new standards is that they let you persuade your audience in a more dialectically effective way of your views. As opposed, let's give an example, you wanted to offer a more contemporary version or a different, different contemporary version of one of the different ways that Thomas famously argued for the existence of God. So for instance, you might offer sort of a Plantigan argument for the existence of God. Turns out those kinds of arguments employ just the kinds of inferences, which I picked out earlier as being the kinds of inferences, which um, the Thomistically minded logician says don't obey logic, but the analytic philosopher and the logician say do. That's right, that it looks like this kind of standard for what it is for an argument to obey logic literally let you offer people who you're trying to convince to believe in God a more dialectically effective means of arguing for that kind of claim. That may not move all the Thomists in the room, but I trust that at least some people will be attracted to that kind of notion. And the reason why you'll be able to offer a more dialectically effective kind of thing right there is you can literally, you don't actually have a whiteboard here, so. I, I can, I, oh, okay, well, I mean, here's just one. I mean, this is, I, I realize I'm wanting to see if you can see the back. I'm sorry, I promise I'll come back. Uh, but it turns out that, for instance, this, That is the kind of thing you can just prove using just sort of, um, we're back, uh, using just uh, basic uh, logical methods that you know, any analytic philosopher or logician can tell you about. And if that's true, then it looks like, again, this kind of new standard for what it is for an argument to obey logic, let you offer this like more dialectically effective way to convince people what you're trying to convince them of. So. Wrapping up. What I've suggested, and all I've suggested, is that the Thomists may borrow the analytic standards for determining when an argument obeys logic. If you borrow those standards, you don't compromise your faith one yoda, nor do you have to change your philosophy one bit. And it also offers you a more dialectically effective way to convince people of the kinds of things that you want to convince them of. What more could you ask for?
this simple idea that Mac is offering me a helping hand, right? He is, he is extending uh, a friendly, neighborly hand uh, to help me fix rubber. So in these responses, I'd like to do two things. First, I'd like to look quizzically at Mac's hand. Then, once I've done that, um, I'd like to um, take happily Mac's hand. Um, but the quizzical look at Mac's hand first. Here, there are two things that, uh, that make me look a bit quizzical. The first is Mac's characterization of analytic philosophy. And the second is his characterization of formal logic. Um, and so really, sort of before I take Matt's hand, what I really want to do is just ask him for some further clarification or explanation uh, so that I know or have a better sense of what I might be getting involved when, when I engage in the mention. Uh, so the first thing is about the characterization of analytic philosophy. And here, I have what I might call a Goldilocks word, right? So Goldilocks and three bears, right? And the, the kind of one of the most important and memorable aspects of the story is that sometimes it's too hot, sometimes it's too cold. Um, so recall, just briefly, the way that Max thought of the game. Uh, he began by suggesting a definition of analytic philosophy. The definition that he gave um, is very simple. It's very easy, and I like simple things. So analytic philosophy is just formally rigorous philosophy. Okay. And then he gave us a, a kind of helpful clarification. So something counts as formally rigorous philosophy if and only if it offers arguments that either, so here's the disjunction, right? Either live up to the standards of formal logicians or could be reconstructed to do so, right? So it's going to be analytic philosophy just as long as it either lives up to these standards that Matt has spelled out um, so clearly and carefully in his talk or could be reconstructed in a way that does so. Now, this is where my worry comes in. Matt was very insistent during his talk that he really does mean that disjunction. He said it like three or four times, right? I, I'm committed to disjunction. The disjunction. Now, my my quizzical look at the offer hand is: Are you committed to that disjunction? Right? Um, you say you are, but it seems like I can give you a too hot, too cold problem, right? So it goes like this: If you're really committed to that disjunction then it looks like um, your, your definition of philosophy of analytic philosophy overgenerates, right? It's too hot, we might say. Um, why would I say that? Well, imagine you're like me, and um, you spend a lot of time reading Aristotle's Metaphysics. And so I can take a paragraph from Aristotle's Metaphysics, and I can ask myself this question of that paragraph in Aristotle's metaphysics. Does this live up to the standards of formal logicians? Well, no, there's no math. Right? Uh, could it 
live up to the standards of formal logicians? Now, maybe there are cases where he's giving arguments that are, by maps like, bad arguments. But let's not consider those cases. Um, it seems like at least somewhere in the metaphysics, a good argument is there to be found. Now, suppose, so suppose we're just focusing on that paragraph. Well, then it seems like that paragraph could be reconstructed to live up to the standards of formal logic. Which means, at least it seems to me, that by Matt's definition, that paragraph of Aristotle's metaphysics is analytic philosophy. And that seems weird, right? <laughs> now, maybe he's okay with that, right? But if, if that's what he's inviting me to think, uh, if that's the way that he's inviting me to think about analytic philosophy, um, then maybe I'll take the hands, maybe I won't, but I'm definitely quizzical about the hand that's being on. Uh, and you taught us, we taught us what I've said about passages in Aristotle's Metaphysics. You could say about you know, passages of you know, the Iowa Vaisheshtha philosophy in the Indian tradition. You can say about passages from Aquinas, passages from you know, Renaissance Thomists like Cardinal Cajadin or Sylvester of Ferrara, etc. etc. Um, and the more instances like that I generate, the less plausible. It seems to me that we've got a good joint carbon definition of analytic philosophy, right? Because it turns out that like analytic philosophy is a lot older than I thought it was. Um, analytic philosopher includes a lot of things that I thought analytic philosophers would not want to associate with, etc. etc. Um, so that's the too hot problem, right? Um, now the other side of the kind of Goldilocks problem is um, Maybe, despite all of Max's insistence that he really is committed to the, uh, the disjunction, maybe he's just not. Uh, and maybe what he really means is just the first member of the disjunction, right? Maybe what he means is that analytic philosophy is formally rigorous philosophy, where formally rigorous philosophy is uh, that philosophy which offers arguments that just live up to the standards of formal logicians. And maybe he just wants to tweet that um, you know, it something could live up to the standards of formal logicians, whether it is explicitly spelled out in formal logic, or whether the person who's giving the argument, you know, in in fact expects it to live up to those standards, right? And then it seems like, um, you know, perhaps you could make an argument that Aristotle never expected any argument that he makes in the metaphysics to live up to the standards. Why? Well, because he didn't have those standards available to um, That strikes me as a not insane position, but it also strikes me as potentially too cold, right? So it, it seems at least plausible to me um, that you can find passages in an article published in a journal of, in a journal of say, analytic ethics, where the author of that journal uh, neither is doing any math nor even intends for what he or she is doing to be mathematics, right? And in fact, maybe, for example, um, maybe you're someone like uh, G.E.M. Anscombe, right? And you're a virtue ethicist, and you take seriously Aristotle's claim, or kind of the broadly Aristotelian claim, that, um, you know, that you shouldn't expect the same degree of certainty out of ethics as you do out of 
math, right? Um, and it seems, but it seems to me like there are lots of contemporary analytic ethicists who work in the virtue ethics tradition, who are publishing in analytic ethics journals, um, who then, on the first member of the disjunct account, even, even massage don't actually count as analytic philosophers according to the proposed definition. Uh, this is not meant to be a refutation, right? It really is just a kind of question. I'm, I'm puzzled by the definition. That's the characterization of uh, analytic philosophy. I'm also a little bit quizzical about the characterization of formal logic. Um, and here, though, uh, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm by means a card carrying mathematician. Um, I will grid the, the title, right, and play with it. So, with respect to formal logic as the study of entailment, whose entailments? Which logic? Uh, in, in the analytic tradition, right, set aside Tony for a second, right, just within the analytic tradition, there are a great plurality of logics. Uh, listening, listening to this talk and seeing this talk, you, you might, through, I think, no fault of maths, we, Thomas, might naively think that analytic logic as math has presented it, presented it is a, a homogeneous unit, that it's, it's a single thing. But surely it is not, right? Um, and the, the discrepancies and the differences between formal logical systems go pretty deep. Right, so um, you can have intuitionist logicians in the analytic tradition. You can have um, you can have folks like Graham Priest or uh, Notre Dame's own J.C. Beale, right, who will tell us that the one true logic is first degree entailment, FDE logic, and it turns out that lots of things that both I and Matt would think are perfectly valid arguments, right, most always. Uh, are not valid arguments, according to FDE. So, um, so yet again, I'm, I'm quizzical. I'm, uh, I'm a little worried. It's not a deal breaker for me, but just it's a question, right? So if, if the proposal being made is, hey, look, we've got this logic thing. Um, it's better than your logic thing. Take ours and use ours, right? Then the question is, well, it turns out what you're offering me is a panoply of logics. Um, which one should I be taking? Should I be taking all of them? If so, why? Right? Uh, it seems at least naively uh, like uh, if you are going to include intuitionist logicians, um, you know, logical pluralists, um, you know, folks who deny the principle of non-contradiction, right? Uh, and you're like normal vanilla milk toast mainstream contemporary analytic logician like Matt, um, you might wonder what do what do all of those have in common? And if there is something that they all have in common, is it really something that they don't also have in common with the Thomas logician? You know, uh, I mean we have validity too. Um, so what is it that's going to unify um, analytic logic such that there is some even general sense in which we can talk about it as some tool in the singular that I can take on board.
Okay. Um, that's the, the quizzical look at maps offered help. Um, now here's how I hope I can happily take the hamlet off. Um, and I, I'm going to happily take the hand that's offered by correcting um, gently and, and uh, in a friendly way the presentation of what Matt called simple tonism. Uh, so remember that the presentation of simple tonism, at least with respect to logic, was just this that um, for the simple tonist, um, logic is the study of syllogisms, right? Or at least the kind of logic that corresponds to what he is calling logic in the Thomas tradition is syllogistics. Okay. Um, I think that might not be the case. Here's why. Um, as Matt rightly alluded to during this talk, for the Thomist, logic in our sense now um, is the study of reason. Um, and you might even say the study of good reason. And for us, reason, right, this mental capacity, this faculty of the mind that we have, can engage in different activities, exactly as Max said. So for us, logic is about mental action done right. Um, what activities can it engage in? Well, characteristically, we will read. We can mentally grasp a concept, we can mentally form a judgment, and we can mentally engage in a bit of reasoning, right? A process of reasoning. That third act of the mind, we say, um, always involves reasoning, so moving from a known truth to an unknown truth. And that reasoning from known truths to unknown truths, we have always held, can be studied in two ways. It can be studied formally or material, because even when it comes to immaterial acts of the mind, we somehow remain hylomorphous. <laughs> so there's just form and matter all over the place, even metaphorically, so to speak, with regard to this third operation of the intellect. The formal, I submit to you, for the Thomist, and this would even be the simple Thomist, um, what Matt has called the study of inference is what we would call um, the formal study of the third act of the mind. It is the formal study of the act by which the human mind reasons from known truths to unknown truths. That, for us, is inference, right? And inference studied formally rather than materially. We're not looking at any, any of the content of, of any of the premises. We're not peering into what the actual known or unknown truths are. We're just looking formally at the inferred. Well, if that is in fact what the Thomists have always meant um, by what Matt is calling the study of inference, then that is not in principle committed to the further claim that all inferences are and must be syllogistic inferences. Um, it's true that I mean, in the history of logic, there was a really long time, right, where the vast majority of inferences were understood to be syllogistic or crypto-syllogistic and dramatic. Um, but with respect to what the Thomist understands logic to be in general, 
and in particular, right, the formal study of reasoning from known truths to unknown truths, that, in fact, needn't be limited to syllogistic inferences. If it turns out, then, that there are more ways to validly infer from a known truth to an unknown truth than syllogistic inference, then that should be a welcome addition to and completion of the Thomistic understanding of logic. Um, which is why I say, I think, if I'm understanding the suggestion that's being made correctly, um, I think we can happily take the offer of help. And not only can we happily take the offer of help, we can accept it not as an extrinsic correction of the Thomas understanding of logic, but as, in fact, an intrinsic perfection. It is, if there were no such thing as analytic philosophy, right, um, and the Thomists had to come up with this on their own, I submit to you, we should have. Uh, now, in this case, we don't have to. Our, our friendly neighbors have done a whole bunch of work for us, right? Um, and with that, I'll stop with the thank you.